This is the Constructionist Podcast, where we take ancient stories, the person of Jesus, current events and topics, and help you construct a new Christian worldview that's relevant and loving to those around you. I'm your host, Kevin Bates. I'm a semiotician and community builder looking at the signs of the times to build a better future together. You are tuned into the Constructionist Podcast, and tonight we are continuing our series on the Bible, what to believe and what to leave. So we encourage a worldview at the Constructionist that is built on the principles of Christ. And in this episode, we're examining stories that make no sense and trying to make sense of them. And we're probably ruining the Bible for some as we talk about old stories of the Old Testament and a few of the new and give new perspectives that may go against what you learned on your flannel graphs in Sunday school. But by doing so, we hope to offer insights and perspectives that will help you in your own journey towards a greater understanding of love, compassion, for yourself and for others. So we want to assure you that in tonight's episode, we're not fabricating anything as many people have done. We're giving information, we're giving ideas, we're giving resources that you can find on your own. And our goal is to provide an honest and authentic perspective on our examination of the text. So this is our thinking space and we're presenting just thoughts and ideas tonight making a best attempt to explain very practical theologies to live by. So if you enjoy the Constructionist podcast and want to support us financially, please follow the link in the chat or show notes on the social media platform you're listening to. You can support us and enable us to continue producing high quality content like this. But even more important, we want to hear from you, engage with you, and we believe that through our interactions and discussions with listeners like you, we continue to learn and grow together. So we value your feedback. We value your questions. We value your your ideas, and we're excited to build a community around a shared exploration called a communal hermeneutic. So please don't hesitate to reach out to us and let us know what you think. All right, thanks for joining us, Sheree and Jake. Welcome to, again, the Bible, what to leave, what to keep, what to get rid of, looking at stories that make no sense, trying to make sense of them. And tonight, we're going to just talk in maybe patterns, maybe big ideas, maybe a bigger narrative, trying to make sense of what we've been attempting to do all along, looking at some specific stories. I think it's time to take just a step back a little bit for a while before we dive into like David and the prophets and some of the other pieces of the Old Testament. Mm -hmm. But just take a just a step back, take a 30,000 foot view of what we're doing. So the first thing that I just want to I want to just make a point in saying is I believe that the Bible is truly an inspired book. And it's inspired in this way that the Bible is a culmination of stories that people just God-fearing people normal people, not, not necessarily special, mystical type figures, but just normal people wrote down, penned down ideas, narratives, metaphors, poems, psalms, and songs, just to explain bigger picture ideas, but very practical ideas that could be implemented into daily life. So these stories were for a certain time and a place and meant a lot for that certain time and place. We look back on them sometimes and we try to make sense of what's not there, or we try to make it say what it's not saying. And so the adoption of historical, like uh, literalism, let's call it historical literalism, many times requires ignoring what's in the text. Many times requires just ignoring what the Bible is saying. Why? Because if we're historical literalists, God definitely takes on a cosmic, angry, killjoy type mm -hmm. figure, um, being, or God takes on a very wrathful, hateful <clears throat> mentality. But when you are more into a historical, figurative, imaginative view, 
when you take that on, then then these stories become more of a spiritual journey, just like they were meant to be. And just like they were meant to lead them, those people that were of the, that time and place, were to lead them down a spiritual path, to lead them down some answers of some spiritual or just just emotional, mental ideas that they were led down this path, were to be led down those paths as well. So do I think that these Old Testament stories apply today? Absolutely. Not in historical literalism. They applied then in a meta-narrative. I think they can apply today in a meta-narrative. But for example, justice in the Old Testament and how that played out in justice can't necessarily be applied today. We're not going to stone people to death for certain behaviors just out on the street. We're right. also not not going to do certain things that people have done, that people have adopted into their culture. We're not going to have the same food practices or the same ritualistic practices of religion. We're not going to have these same practices. Why? Because those don't they're not really relevant to our culture and to our time and place in the modern world, in this time and place. Everything then, historically, there's historical ideas, there's historical people, there's historical places, there's historical regions, there's historical practices, but we can't miss the meta narrative. We can't miss the bigger picture. We can't miss the bigger story. Otherwise, the Bible just becomes a textbook. So we're going to talk first about the Bible being a form of literature versus a historical textbook. Because I think we run some really dangerous risks when we go down the historical text route versus the historical literature route or the literature idea, the, the um, imaginative literature route. So Shreya, why don't you take us down that pathway of literature versus textbook? What do sure. I mean by that? What do you mean by that? Yeah, well, I think um, for those of us who were brought up in the evangelical tradition, um, we learned that the Bible was a textbook. It is what literally happened, right? So we were taught to believe that creation happened in seven days, exactly like it says in Genesis. And like you touched on, when you take a literal historic perspective, you have to ignore what's in the text. Um, and so for that reason, we probably missed the fact that there are actually two creation stories happening in the first few chapters of Genesis. Um, so that right there just kind of illustrates the problem of looking at the Bible as a historic narrative, or even as a scientific narrative, because there are absolutely folks out there who will say that the Bible is the only text you need to understand everything about life. Um, mm -hmm. and that's just kind of a foolish position, I think. Um, so instead, if we look at the Bible as literature, it opens up for us, I think, all of the potential meanings. Um, something we talk a lot about is the, um, the life of Pi perspective. What's the most beautiful story? Um, and so part of looking at the Bible as literature allows us to get something of meaning out of the text, because if something really literally happened historically, what does that really do for us spiritually? Does it really matter that much? It's of little benefit besides maybe proving that we're right. So it just strokes our ego. And I don't think that the Bible is here to just stroke our ego. Um, most of the time it does the opposite, I think. Um, so part of what we're looking at, um, Kevin, you called it the meta narrative. So this is like the big story or the, the story that all of the little stories fit into. Um, another way we're gonna talk about this is calling it the exilic pattern. And so there's this movement of being exiled and then being brought back. And we see this movement happen over and over. We talked about it happening in Genesis as Adam and Eve were kicked out of the garden. Um, we talk about it with Noah as the flood is almost a form of exile. You're stuck on this boat and then you're brought back to the land again. 
um, and this pattern happens over and over. And so as we start to recognize this pattern happening in this story, the point is the pattern. Um, we can find ourselves in the story, we can find ourselves in the pattern, and that allows the story to speak to us at a spiritual level where we're at, um, because I think we have all felt something of exile, um, feeling far away from what we had hoped for or um, that kind of thing. Um, if I could add something just to mm -hmm. illustrate a little farther, you've heard the phrase history, no history or history will repeat it. N know your history or history mm -hmm. will repeat itself. You, we've That's an old adage. And <clears throat> I think that that's, that's true is to know history so that we don't repeat it. But a lot of history is irrelevant. Like when we look back on history, go, I'm not going to, I'm never going to do that. <laughs> I'm never going to even, but I know the history to know that I'm never going to do that. So it is taking a historical view is forming. I think it can form us to only a point because when I was back East, I was in Washington, DC this last summer and with my family and I was going around to the different museums and we were just hitting all the big spots and all the, all the, um, <clears throat> all the big, you know, uh, 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 sites, all the tour sites. And in some of those tour sites, I was, I found it really interesting to just learn our history, um, learn the culture, learn what they did, you know, on a daily basis or learn what they actually said. Some of the things that Lincoln said, I was shocked that he said them. Um, it kind of changed my view, but, but he lived in a certain time and a place. And so would I say those same things now? Absolutely not. Um, but I know the history and the history is probably not going to repeat itself in my life because I know that history and I've learned that history, but history, I can't find myself in history. Like when I think about the Vikings, even though I have, you know, red hair and this, you know, Viking build, right? I don't find myself in Viking land. I can't see myself there. I don't picture myself as a Viking person. I know the history, but I can't find myself in that history. Kind of like in even modern 50 years ago history. Let's go 55 years ago history. <laughs> that I know that history, but it's just so old and so pretty much that 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 cannot apply ever again to our modern times. I know the history, but I can't find myself. When we find ourselves in the narrative or the imaginative, I then begin to find myself in that historical imagination. I can't find myself in David's history. It doesn't apply. I don't see myself in a prophet's or a judge's history. It doesn't apply. It's are completely... Talking, are you talking about... You're talking about the historical... If fact. I take a historical literal view... And not the narrative of it, but the historical... Not the imaginative, no. Mm -hmm. If I take a historical literal view, I can't find myself there. So it's only forming to a certain point, but I... I really want to encourage as you're talking, I'm just thinking about how the Bible can be transforming. And I mm -hmm. think that when we take that narrative, imaginative, non-literal view, we begin to find ourselves in the story and to be transformed by it versus just the slight forming. You know, I'm not going to do that. I wouldn't do that. I think you there. I totally agree. And we have to be careful to stay away from the illumination of mm. scripture. And so like, yeah, not, not everything. It, the Bible is a literary collection. So it has a lot of different genres, a lot of different time periods, a lot of different ideas. And so <clears throat> to always try to find yourself in the text as well is not accurate. Mm hmm. Yeah, and I don't think I'm saying you're, you're not saying I'll, that, but I just want. Well, I could I could have been alluding that way. I don't want to come across that way that I can find myself in every text. But Sherry, what do you think about 
like making up things in the text. I mean, like when you take a historical, imaginative, narrative, meta narrative, 30,000 foot view, <laughs> there's room to make stuff up. That's not there is. true. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and that's why, like, I think it's just about nuance. Because I, I do hear what you're saying, and I do think there is a truth to it, and and also what Jake's saying. Somewhere, but like, um, <laughs> I mean, even if you read a historical novel, right, that's set in, um, for example, I read one uh, recently that was set in um, the Spanish Civil War. Um, okay, yeah. And I, I could find myself in that story because I'm being invited into what the characters are thinking and feeling. I'm being invited into um, what the culture was like and how people lived and understanding why things were the way they were. And I, I think it does that, that why question, why things are the way they are, that invites us in. Um, that is a bit more powerful than the what, right? Just because something happened doesn't necessarily make it profound. But when we understand why it happened, mm -hmm. then we're invited in, then we're able to see ourselves, then we can say whether or not history can repeat itself. Because that book that you read was fiction or nonfiction? Fiction. Yeah, it's historical fiction, right? Mm -hmm. So so could you apply that now i don't i want to be very careful of just saying the bible's fiction um right <laughs> but could you apply the same principle where if it was just a history novel you might be invited in learn some things go that was cool or that wasn't cool um but when you're invited into a story to think feel and experience what people thought felt experience that happens with you know, that happens in the movies all the time where they take books mm -hmm. and then turn them into movies and then they have to definitely illustrate and use imagination and fill in all the blanks of the history. So, so what I'm hearing is that I'll use the same ver the same word as the transformative experience becomes greater when you're invited into the story. Yeah, and I think that's part of the challenge with scripture, too, is that because it's a culture that's so distant from our own, it's yeah. harder to know the whys, why things mm -hmm. happened the way they did, why people acted the way they did. And so it's harder to find ourselves in the text that way. Yeah, yeah. Jake, why don't you talk about, well, Sharia alluded to, yeah. the exilic pattern. Well, let's, what let's go back. is, go you want to go back? Okay, go for it. We, we, we're using words like fiction or nonfiction, historical, non-historical. Mm -hmm. I think if, if we, t most of scripture in the traditional view of fiction versus non-scripture, non-fiction versus non-fiction mm -hmm. would be considered historical fiction from the time and place it was written from the lack of like first-hand information, first-hand writing, how we deal with history or fiction, nonfiction now would never play out in the same way. And so is it fictitious of like, is it a lie? I don't know. It's just the, the, the ethics and the moral of stories are greater than the story itself. Well, right? can I take that one step farther and shore me up on my loose edges of my progressive thoughts. Historical fiction to me is like the Spanish Civil War. That actually happened. There was an actual war. There was actual events. And then we put a person, a fictitious person in that event, right? I don't think that that's the way the Bible was written. Mm -hmm. Because some of these events like Exodus or, or Jonah or um, Noah, like some of these, some of these events, there's no record, there's no proof, there's no mm -hmm. archaeological evidence. There's really very loose, like, like even literary, like support that these events actually occurred in the way that they did. If I could, the old transparency 
method of showing slides that shows my age when you were in school you had a transparency projector and on that transparencies projector you could put a copied image so let's say in biology class you're looking at the heart right and that transparency of the heart and then gets shown on the screen and then the professor or the or the teacher in high school or whatever would take a marker and they would draw and totally illustrate the heart with language and pictures and ideas and pointing and arrows and all these things to illustrate the heart of just to illustrate the heart that's being projected on the on the screen so that's my illustration that there is a heart to scripture and there's a deep heart of god to scripture and the writers then are taking that heart and basically completely illustrating and depicting a picture that's greater than and trying to put it in language that people can understand but i i think that there's a heart there it's just the story and the people and the ideas and the wars and the death and the survival and all these things are being packaged around that mm -hmm. but when we just look at it in historical literal view all we see we don't even we miss the heart well we we miss and we miss we only take in at that point what we want to and so right. many literalists only take in what they can use in an arsenal for their own agenda. Right. They miss all the other, all the other parts about loving your neighbor. Well, they're trying to make it speak what they want it to say. Welcoming the stranger. And so like when you talk about history as well, no, no history ever has been written without bias. Right. And so when we talk through Joshua and judges and, and the mass mm -hmm. genocide of the, of the Canaanite people, um, mm -hmm. even though in chapters later, the Canaanites are still there and there's, yeah, the history is written with an agenda. Mm. And so even history that, that we have in our history books, like mm -hmm. our history that we write down in, in the, in the Americas look much different than, than Western history in, in mm -hmm. Germany or in right. Africa or Asia, like those different vantage points, whether you're the winner or the loser, which it's, it's said that the, the victors write the history. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Which is actually not necessarily true. Not necessarily true. Yeah. The winners write their version of history that most people adopt because they're the winners. Right. So t tell us about the, so let's advance forward. The exilic pattern, because Shreya brought up the exilic pattern. So I don't want to just gloss over that and move on. Yeah. What is the exilic pattern? Years ago now, Kevin and I went to Trinity Seminary in Langley, BC mm -hmm. to sit there with N.T. Wright to talk about his exilic pattern. And it's interesting, like, thinking back now, that was a new concept, but how quickly that it was adopted by many, many theologians and just uh, incorporated as into basic knowledge. By the time, it was, it was pretty cutting edge to turn the entire Old Testament into this narrative form that expresses exile over and over and over again and so the first exile is that of adam and eve from the garden and so all of our exile periods are pointing back to that first exile of adam and eve narratively we're talking about complete narratively at this point mm -hmm. uh noah is and usually the the pattern is is you are stable in the land there's some sin or rejection of God and God's ways that happens. God sends warning. God continues to send warning and finally sends a, and 
It could be an angel. It could be an army. It could be a flood. It could be a judge. A judge. I mean, judges usually bring people back, but yes, a judge. Um, But then the people are scattered and taken from their God-given inheritance for a period of time. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the main uh, one of the main reasons for Joshua is the distribution of land, and so and so when you look back and and when this was written, this was written in the or at least compiled, it was written in the time of exile in Babylon, and so people wanted to get back to their God-given inheritance of land. And that's why that's written down there again for people to read, but it's in. So people are taken from the land and then they go through a time of mourning. They go through a time of repentance. They go through a time of, of coming back to the institutions of God through, through ritual sacrifice and tradition. And then they are reinstated back into their land because of their faithfulness of, from, of God in nations outside of their own nation or land outside of their own land. And so, I mean, we see it all the way through, through scripture, Adam and Eve, Noah, mm-hmm. Abraham going to Egypt, Jacob going to Egypt. That leads with the, the Moses exile. Moses becomes a judge. Then that, that pushes people out in back into the promised land. Uh, you have the exile of, judges when you read through it it's a continual pattern of exile um and exile comes with the thought of redemption in in the meta narrative or the story that's above all the story is our is our exile from the presence of god divinity of god or like the closeness with god and so Jesus in the New Testament becomes that final exile, that final uh, exodus, I should say, back into the promised land of a promised community. The land becomes bigger at that point. It becomes the whole earth. It, stop, it doesn't just stop with the boundary of Israel, but it's the entire earth that's in that pattern of exile. So building then on top of that pattern, if it's a pattern illustrated in multiple ways, right? That Brueggemann calls that the historical imaginative. When you, when you look at the same story in this imagination and that imagination and this imagination, you're just looking at it in different renderings and different, actually different interpretations. So, and that's what historical imaginative uh, lenses do is that it allows for a pluralistic interpretation, which becomes a little scary for some, where, you know, the edges are not so bound and it becomes open. The, the gateway is open for misinterpretation at that point. And, and what is misinterpretation? So when we put mm-hmm. fences around the edges of that, it becomes a little more, I guess, secure. But I don't think the Bible was meant to be this tightly knit, sewn up, secure piece of literature. It's, you know, the, the heart of God and the heart of God knows no bounds. So, so I, so I look at it as well, being open to multiple, what Brueggemann would call, um, Walter Brueggemann would call, uh, renderings, multiple renderings of the same story or, if you only have a single rendering, then that what that does is, I guess you're trying to make the Bible say something that it could possibly not be saying. And so you're following this very narrow um, trench that has been dug and the Bible, you're trying to force it to say something. So like when it comes to the subject of justice, like a lot of our justice today is built off of the Old Testament. Mm-hmm. And that those that very narrow line of justice that you know is is you know could be rendered in multiple multiple different ways, but if you take a single rendering that you know people are bad and God is good and God is going to snipe the bad, and so we we just have this like 
almost like single rendering of that that exilic story and it's it's not necessarily or that pattern it's not necessarily the same rendering so it's an imaginative multiple imaginative narrative <clears throat> otherwise we're telling or we're telling the bible what to say versus allowing the bible to say what it what it was meant to say um in multiple different ways and multiple different renderings that's what brugamon would call that multiple multiple renderings versus single single renderings i think people get afraid of that because most of our uh, old testament theology is um, attributed to christian people so our old testament the, like old testament theologian practices are christian driven and so christians are seen are trying to see through lenses of christian to interpret the old testament so everything has to lead to christ everything our, has our, to lead to the messiah our bias of history writing is that of christ right when it could just be a standalone imaginative story why does it always have to lead to christ they call that the thin red line as you go through scripture you're looking through this thin what was that that you showed there this heschel oh this thin red line of of trying to find the messiah and everything that's why i think genesis 3 16, 18, um the proto evangelium you know mm -hmm. things like that it's like you just end up missing saying things that the bible doesn't say there are no uh, christophanies in the old testament right the old testament was the old testament can you use that imaginative sense and kind of overlay that over the old testament and say wow god really showed up and god showed up for me in christ in that in that way too yeah sure you could say that uh but to build a theology around that i think is is it goes beyond the 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 scope of what the new the old testament was was meant but when you when you use imaginative interpretation then that opens up some things for my jesus mm -hmm. and do you do you have any thoughts on that? Like, what could that open up in in our theology of Jesus? If I if I'm too loose with the Old Testament, what does that open up for Christ? I don't know about too loose. I yeah. Jesus. I think about the fact that Jesus is going to be steeped in these stories. Um, and so understanding the character of Jesus, understanding what Jesus is trying to do does depend on understanding these stories at least a little bit. Mm -hmm. Jesus was Jewish. Right. I, I was going the same route with you, Shreya, that without an understanding of these texts, I think, we, we miss a lot of the heart and message of what Jesus and Paul and the entire early Testament were written by Jewish people. Christianity mm -hmm. was a sect of Judaism all the way until 300 mm -hmm. at least. I mean, really 200 something. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so to bifurcate Judaism and Christianity, but to also put Jesus where there was never an intent to be. Uh, Paul talks about the fulfillment of the law, but that presupposes the law is also needed to be fulfilled. And so you have to know what the law is. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know, it, it, although I believe there are no Christophanies and that the Messiah figure of Isaiah and Jeremiah and some of the prophets get gets really big um i don't think any old testament writer even had the imaginative process to figure out what jesus would be like and probably wouldn't be very happy about what he did he did appear as well i think that's where i was going is that if you use the imaginative process or the imaginative filter of the old testament 
that it begins to break down the the idea that Jesus was fulfilling certain prophecies and f- fulfilling certain things of the Old Testament, and that there's <clears throat> there's no tie between the two. I do believe that there's a tie between the two. I just don't believe that it's as tightly knit and stitched like we want it to be. Um, to the point that we try to, well, and we impose certain theologies like substitutionary atonement of Christ and the cross. We we try to impose certain renditions of atonement from the Old Testament to the New Testament that Jesus had to fulfill absolutely sin in, in this way or forgive sin in this way to where there, there was no, I guess, other option besides a substitutionary atonement scapegoat paying of debt type of type of rendition when i would say jesus on the cross was doing battle with the adversary and won through the resurrection and the chains of the adversary were broken so so i think that being too i guess literal and and entrenched in certain ideas of the old testament doesn't allow for a more imaginative jesus either that jesus actually could fulfill the old testament and say actually the greatest law is to love your neighbor see i think jesus was imaginative he did change the old Mm -hmm. testament he used certain like ideas out of the old testament and changed the old testament so we can't get away from that either so if it was a literal entrenched theology, Jesus wouldn't have changed the Old Testament. It had to have been an imaginative piece of literature of some degree. Which in Judaism, there is a practice of treating it as an imaginative piece of literature. Mm-hmm. That it's, That's the third interpretation, yeah. I think it's, it's always holy and it never leaves its... Never the the Torah never loses its holy status really to to Judaism, but there's play in that 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 we we engage with the text. We don't just let the text stand on its own. Yeah, it's the third interpretation. So that you have the first interpretation, like in the prophets, the first interpretation is the prophet. And, and like Isaiah is dealing with Isaiah one, two, or three, you know, you look at Isaiah one and Isaiah was dealing with Isaiah and Isaiah's issues. Then you have the nation of Israel. And so then you have a broader view of a nation, tribal community that it's speaking to. And then you have an imaginative sense where this is Messiah. This is the church. This, you can, you can use that imaginative sense to, to go into different views, but uh, they would probably, the Jews would probably take that to Messiahship, that the Messiah is still to come. And so therefore this is speaking to Messiah type ideas. And that's the imaginative, the Halakhic view. Mm-hmm. Isn't that? Halakha. Yeah. Halakha. Okay. Well, let's go over specifics because Shreya has some things to talk about the law. And we're going to, to, basically sum up the rest of the Old Testament or try to um, in this this shtick that we're going to do because before, let's see, before the kings, before the kings, like King Saul, King David, King Solomon, the, the kings and advancing forward all of the subsequent kings. I would say that before the kings, the mediator, there was no mediator. Maybe Moses, maybe Joshua, you can make those claims. So let's go before Moses. You you had really Moses was listening to the direct voice of God in the narrative. So 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 the so the mediator, I guess, wasn't necessarily so defined in that sense where he was listening to the voice of god eventually moses receives this law and then the law becomes this written voice of god so the law becomes the mediator the intercessor the intermediate 
between the human and the divine. Can I can I step in? Yeah, here? jump in. Um well Moses was considered the him and Aaron as one unit was considered the first Hebrew priest. Okay, so bef right before that. You even have like but you have like um uh, like who would be who would be before that? Uh the priests of God I think were also floating around. So like but, but would you say it was so defined cuz I was saying before that it's not really a defined there's no defined line. Yeah. Of a media, this is God's mediator. Well, you had Melchizedek, and so like, that's why I probably would say point two. If you if you take the narrative form, yeah, you had Melchizedek, and then you have Moses's uh, father-in-law Reuben or whatever the name is in the other other story. Mm -hmm. That was also yeah, but before before God. that, like like Noah's day, Adam and Eve day, right? Mm -hmm. That's what I'm I mean, talking about. Okay. Well. In the in the Adam and Eve story, God walks with them in the garden. Mm -hmm. So do we assume that there's no intermediary there? That's where I'm trying to get to. Before the law, there's like uh -huh. the, the intermediary mediary person, idea, subject is not there. Yeah. So right. well, well, I was saying... Like, at least in the Adam and Eve story, could we say that an intermediary wasn't necessary? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay, so could we say it this way? So then in we the move on. Yeah, in, in the garden scene, okay. <laughs> no mediary person, no intercessor bridging the gap between the divine and the human. It wasn't necessary. After the garden mm -hmm. scene. Right. We then begin to see the formation of some kind of intermediary type figureheads. But then we see with Moses a more defined figurehead. Mm -hmm. And then we see then the law becoming one of the first intermediary ideas that Moses takes the tablets shows Israel the tablets and saying, this is what we're going to follow. This is what we're going to subscribe to as, as a nation. So that begins this pattern of, of intermediary type figures or ideas that are telling the story, how it plays out when you have this mediary intermediate intercessor type person or idea so when we have the law as that's now the go-between god and people is the law so if we follow the law we have access to god that's what i'm trying to say when we follow the law we have access to god mm -hmm. so shreya unpack the law what is the law in the old testament because some say this is the ten commandments but it's more than that when we say the right. Law. I mean, the the whole Torah is considered the law, so that's the first five books of the Bible, right? Um, and I think that makes a lot of sense to us if we look at books like Leviticus that are mostly commands. Um, it's a little bit harder for us to understand when we're looking at, say, Genesis that has a lot of stories, um, but those stories are still considered part of the law. So that again, I think is an invitation into looking at the text as something other than literal. Right. Okay. Jake, give me your version of the law. Oof. Um, when we look at when the, when, when it was compiled together, Mm -hmm. the law was given so that the exiles knew how to act when they came back. Mm -hmm. And so like they were, uh, they were out of, they were out of the land for 80, 120 plus years. 
And so they had to figure out how to become the community that they used to be when they came back together. And so mm-hmm. the, the whole purpose of the law was that they would know how to be and how to act and how to engage with one another. And when you look at the law and, and it, it was a, it was someone's ability to be an intermediator themselves between God and their position. And we talked about it. If you look at the law, like the, in, in the new Testament, especially we have, we had the, the law mongers of the, of the uh, Pharisees, right? Mm-hmm. I think they get a, they get a pretty bad rap. All they were, their entire intent on being was that they wouldn't be exiled again. Right. That it would never happen again. And so when you look at even how they respond to the law and how people treat it and how even when Jesus came and abolished the law, rebuilt the temple, destroyed it and rebuilt it in three days, those were scary adventures for them because they didn't want to be exiled again. And then, in and they're the, already in occupied territory with the Roman Empire, so right. that reality close. is close. And so they're trying their hardest to get back to the law before they would be sent away to have to go through it again. But in seventy two A.D., like in forty years after Jesus, at that point, you have the destruction of the temple, and so it becomes. Mm-hmm. And then they have then three years in the the Jewish revolts and everything else where they starve out Jerusalem, the Romans do, and they're finally destroyed and they're scattered completely the diaspora all the way into 1949. Oh, the reestablishment of the state of Israel? Yeah. Seven or okay. eight, I think. Yeah. And so... Post-World War II. Post-World War II. So those almost... 2000 years of history go by that really the Jewish did not have the Jewish people don't have a, a homeland. So the law as the go between, you know, you can look at the law in different ways. I think when I read Leviticus and some other books that focus on the law, the law does get a bad rap, but honestly, if I look at the meta narrative of the law, what's the purpose of any kind of law is to keep you safe, healthy, and spiritually, mentally well, and physically well. So if I look at the heart of what was intended, I think coming out of exile, you need rules and regs on eat your veggies, um, don't do this or that, be careful touching this or that. I mean, when you don't know how to live, and be a functional person in society, even if there's really very little society and you're trying to reestablish society, um, that can be a really difficult proposition to do just on your own. And so having leaders and mentors and such writing law down to follow, I think was a really important practice and became an intermediate form like a, like a mediator between the divine and human. That if we do these things, God will bless us. If we practice these things, God will give to us. Um, And if we follow these things, God will keep us safe. Mm -hmm. So that fear coming out of that exile, if I just continue to use the imagination and say, well, what kind of fear did they have? Probably great fear to the point that they established systems of operation, Pharisees, Sadducees, Essenes, they established fences around the Torah, don't walk a thousand paces on a Saturday type of thing, where they really built fences around the law to keep them safe, healthy, and and out of exile, not back in the same situation that they were in. Well, then the next go-between I see is the kings. So the kings get a bad rap too. Um, where Israel didn't need a king, but they advocated for a king. So the kings, during the era of the kings, that's another story of when we have this mediator, this is how this plays out. So what what do you think the purpose, looking at the imaginative, what do you think the purpose of the kings were? Gosh, um, 
how I take it, and especially when you read Chronicles. Uh, there's and Chronicles and Kings they have um, they have definite overlap, mm-hmm. um, but they give a more negative view of the kingship than the king than Kings does, um, especially with like in respect to Solomon or Jeroboam or Jehoiakim. It is, it's much more negative. Um, and so my take of the Kings is that it is a, it's their fault. They didn't, it's they didn't Israel's fault or the King's fault. It's the King's fault. Okay. Especially when you read Chronicles and not, not just Kings, but you yeah. have, you have someone that was supposed to keep everybody in check so that exile wouldn't happen again was supposed mm-hmm. to was supposed to build military was supposed to keep people in line with the law of god was supposed to mm-hmm. was supposed to uphold community but instead they just did what keep they them did. safe healthy and fed yeah but instead they got them exiled because they were they were ungodly kings right And then we see in Second Samuel seven the authorization of the Davidic kingdom. Totally. So, but it's the Davidic kingdom becomes a a goal, um, which is odd because when you read the life of David, it's it's he wasn't that great of a guy. Mm-mm. And so, I'm not sure why the Davidic line becomes so important beyond just their national history of we were once a nation that people envied. Right. Okay. Then the next is the prophets. So we have the Kings and the illustration of this is what happens when we have this mediator. Now we have the prophets and I would say that the meta narrative for me, the imagination, historical imagination, would be these are spiritual leaders. These are like spiritual uh, people called, I guess, called forth by God to speak and to teach and to lead. So that would be the meta narrative for me. Um, like Jonah being sent by call, he runs away puked up on the beach by the whale and goes anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so that whole scene. So the prophets become the mediator. What do you guys think that the imaginative is with the prophets? Um, so with the Kings, there's this alignment of, um, of blessing of God with the empire, right? Because the Kings kind of take on mm-hmm. this, empire sort of um way of ruling um and the prophets come along as a a counter to that um so the prophets are i think exclusively anti-empire um and so it's it's a shift from seeing god as aligned with the wealthy and the powerful and instead seeing god aligned With the poor and the needy, I'll just, just yes. keep going for. Yeah, she'll have to reset her internet. I think. Maybe we'll see what happens. So that that mediary, mediate, intermediate person, then is seen in law, is seen in kings, is seen in the prophets, and now what uh, certain theologians call cult practices. But I see that cult practices are, uh, maybe we need to reset for her. Uh, so a little technical difficulty there, but just that, just because I don't know what we what we missed, just to make sure. We filled in the blanks for Sharia, that in the prophets we aligned um, with Not people, aligned. with the poor, with others besides empire, rich and powerful. Um, so we see this media, intermediate entity or person or office, let's call it, 
uh, between the divine and the human, the law, the kings, the prophets become aligned. Everyone's aligning differently. You see this realignment, realignment, realignment. This is how it plays out in the realignment. This is how it plays out with this intermediary type person. But then we emerge right before Jesus. We see years before this emergence of more of a system of practices, what other theologians call cult practices. And I know we're afraid of the word cult, um, but cult in its traditional sense, we see cult religious practices. Which cult around, in sense means a system of worship. System of worship, yes. So we see cult practices um, that use the law, that use the power, that use the empire, that use the wealthy, the rich, the haves, that continue to downplay the poor and the haves nots right and so we see this this split then social classes split economies split um tribalism that we see in the cult practices and the go-between and so the cult practices of pharisees sadducees essenes that plays out into okay this is what happens when you have this system in place between the divine and the human that's my take on the imaginative there with this system any other any other thoughts on that i think we settled it that's we just okay so then system of practices so we have we have the law we have the kings we have the prophets we have the system of religion that is the go-between and now we finally land then on the idea of messiah and Messiah, I think in the Old Testament, in the thoughts of the people of the Old Testament, was much different than what showed up as Messiah. So the thought of Messiah was they were going to be bringing in a new set of laws with a new kingship and a new more powerful empire and a new more powerful prophet you're going to be the prophet of the prophets and the king of the kings. This is where we get this language from. Um, and so establishing maybe the Davidic hopeful kingdom. Uh, and we see the Messiah then as our ultimately in Jesus, ultimately crossing that between the Maccabean wars. We make a jump from the end of the Old Testament to the New Testament, we have a bunch of wars in between the intertestament period. Um, and then we jump into the New Testament where Jesus shows up on the scene and reestablishes a different, completely different idea of go between. And the go between now is in the New Testament. He kind of wipes away all of this other stuff. You don't need another king. You don't need another prophet. You don't need another law. I fulfilled those things. You need to love your neighbor as yourself. You need to love God. And all of a sudden we can then get rebirthed in the garden. We become whole human again in the New Testament because Jesus didn't come to make us Christians. He came to make us whole human. So we become garden types again where God is, like Shereya said, walking amongst us in the spirit, where we see this Ruach, the spirit, walks amongst us and in us. Any other thoughts? Conclude it. Like, just shut it down for me. Concluding the entire Old Testament, I think I think with the exilic pattern, we definitely can overarchingly the whole Old Testament, even the New Testament of of exile and and rebirth is where is where I sit at. Trey, any concluding thoughts? No, I think that's it. <laughs> <laughs> there was a lot, and I think that summarizing the Old Testament is it's an important practice and i think that going back and combing over the old testament is an important practice too as long as we are keeping in mind the historical imagination 
and making sure that we're not just in a single rendering of the Old Testament, because I think a single rendering ends us up in troubling places with the heart of God and the wrath of God and, and things of, of such. So we need to think outside of our fences, think outside of our walls that we've built around interpretation, that there could be multiple renderings, multiple interpretations. And wrapping it full circle is we then find ourselves more in the story and it becomes a more transformative experience in our spiritual journey forward. So with that, thanks, Jake. Thanks, Soraya, for joining and participating and giving input. Your input is very valuable and I'm thankful for it. And with that, good night, everybody.